Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast for early stage web developers and the mentors, teachers, and communities that help them along the way. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me for today's podcast. Um, how are you doing? Oh my goodness, I am doing fantastic. We've got a bright, sunshiny day out here on the, the west coast of Canada just before we move into our rainy season. So I am, uh, I am, I'm having a good day and, I, and I'm getting to talk to you too, which is a pretty fantastic way to, uh, to, start, my, uh, to start my weekend. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, the weather over here is also pretty decent. It's it's hot and it's too soon to be this hot, but um, it, it's it, I think the weekend is looking pretty decent. So yeah, that's good. So I uh, found you on Polywork. Um, I'm really um, appreciative to Polywork because uh, I had this idea. I thought I'd just put it out there and see if people were interested, and I was overwhelmed by the response. So much so that I've been like finding it hard to keep up with getting back to people and saying like, oh my goodness, yeah, let's let's do this. So you are one of the first folks that reached out actually, and um, I read a little bit about your background, and I thought this is perfect for for the for the show. So I'm not going to speak about who you are because you know you are better than me. So I'm going to listen, and I'm going to let you take as much time as you need, go as far back as you want to, and tell us your story. Oh, I don't know about that. You might have gotten more about me from the uh, from the the backgrounds that that I sent in than uh, than I'm even going to remember today. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'll start with kind of where I am now and maybe go a little bit further backwards. So I'm a I'm an educator um, based here in uh, British Columbia, Canada. So just on the west coast of Canada, um, with a big focus around uh, technology education and educational technology. So I've worked in um, the middle school, high school, post secondary levels, um, and uh, and sort of throughout the entire time that I've been in the world of education and the world of sort of training other people to do it. Um, I've spent sort of my entire career also just exploring technology. I, I mean, I remember my my first job post graduation from a non tech related um, tech related de degree was. Uh, was to build a website for an organization that I was working for. And it was kind of my first taste of what this looked like professionally. Um, yeah. Yeah. So a uh, technology enthusiast, really passionate about, uh, about exploring ways to get people excited about technology and to look at alternative ways of teaching people technology. Um, and then I also work in, in the industry as a community manager for a really amazing company here in Canada called Battlesnake. And, and I'm sure I'll get a chance to talk about them a little bit later. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely want you to talk about that. I saw that and I was like, what is this? This sounds really interesting. So it's kind of cool because so you're a teacher that also teaches teachers, which is like inception. <laughs> it's really cool. So um, as you know, the, this, the whole idea behind this podcast and, and the community that I've started is all about helping early stage developers get into this industry in a welcoming, friendly way and help them identify by talking to them, but also by talking to teachers and mentors, find where is the missing pieces? What are things that's, that's not working? So that we can find ways of improving this so that the pain, the struggles that we might have gone through when we started we don't have to repeat that for the next the next wave of folks getting into the industry. And I think um, one of the things that's also very important to me is to invite and include everybody, irrespective of where you are in your career development and irrespective of where you live and irrespective of your gender, your background, your choice of how you identify yourself. Like, I want this to be a welcoming place for everybody where they can feel they can talk openly and freely about what works and what doesn't, celebrate their wins and celebrate the failures. So that is a lot. <laughs> With all of that said, as a teacher who teaches, teaches teachers, but also teaches students, what advice do you have for both those bodies, I guess, um, anything that in your time spent doing this, anything that you have found that's like maybe not worked so well and that you found like oh these are better ways of addressing so either speak to students or specifically to the industry 
in general? Yeah, I mean, this was, it's so funny. So A, I got to say, first off, I absolutely love that mission, this idea of inclusiveness and accessibility to this world. Um, even though technology industry is everywhere and almost every company is a technology company now, um, particularly on the developer side, um, I mean, around certainly in North America, but I think around the world, it is still historically a, a very... Um, uh, uh, dominated by a very specific population. And so any initiatives that can be done that will enable um, uh, people that are not coming from that dominant culture to to enter this space, I think is incredibly important. So huge kudos for the Mycelium Network podcast and, and the work that you're doing in this space. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So, and then in answer to your question, so um, it, it's interesting. So this uh, this was a uh, exactly what you're talking about, and the exact reason behind Mycelium Network was uh, actually one of the big uh, pieces behind one of the initiatives that I'm most proud of that I helped to develop in sort of this technology education space, uh, which was a, a program uh, called High Tech U. Um, so it was a, it's a program based out of the University of Victoria, which is a, a, a fairly large research intensive university, um, here in, uh, here in Victoria, British Columbia, um, has a really spectacular, um, software engineering and computer science program. Um, but much like the rest of the world, um, not necessarily turning out the, the number of folks that need to be to be produced out of post-secondary institutions to prepare them for uh, for industry and uh, in, in many ways turning out um, the, the same type of people that are dominating the industry right now, which is not necessarily um, that sort of perpetuation cycle that we're looking to do. Um, so, uh, with this initiative, it was very specifically focused on the exact thing that mycelium is, is sort of really focused on, which is how can we, uh, how can we create a safe, accessible environment that will enable, um, folks that didn't necessarily see themselves in technology to find their place in the industry, be it as, uh, um, somebody working in cu customer support or somebody that's working on, on backend, um, but helping them find a place. And uh, I can go into detail about kind of what that program looked like, but I think the biggest uh, the biggest thing that that came out of that initiative, and and I, I ran it for for three years and built it up with a great team, uh, was uh, kind of counterintuitive uh, to get people excited about tech. It's less about the tech itself and more about the problems that that technology can solve, and really just enabling people to gain an understanding of. Uh, how they can use these free, amazing resources that are out there to solve a problem for them um, and switching this world of you need to be the sort of uh, glasses in your basement with the hoodie uh, eating eating nacho chips um, and drinking soda, which we all love to do. Um, but that's kind of that archetypical yeah. computer scientist look, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, we really focused there on, on switching to the problem solving and then getting people excited about tech and then sort of showing them the different gateways that are there. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I, I'm totally for the problem solving thing. Cause I think one of the challenges that I've heard over and over and over again, and I experienced it myself, um, if you, if you are transitioning from one, cause I used to be a musician and then, um, I found it hard to make a living. I, I, you know, got married and um, we had a kid. And so it was, it was hard. I, like I, I couldn't financially sustain us. I mean, thankfully I had, a, I had parents that, that could help us, but you know, as, as a 21, 22 year old, you don't want your daddy to look after you. You want to be independent, right? You're like, oh, so, um, so I had to find some way of making money. And, um, at that time, uh, flash was still a big thing and that was my like gateway drug into this because it allowed me to combine different things right it allowed me because I was I was like oh I can do animation with this thing that's cool and I can use music because back in the day like in the early 2000s like 2000 2001 it was pretty popular to have this little like fancy intro with animation and music and like stuff and then you add a button right then to enter the website. So I ended up building quite a few of those like intros for clients. So that that allowed me to give creative expression to to myself and still have this little connection to my musical career, but also start like getting into the tech thing. Um, and so, but with that said, um, 
it was still hard because even when I was freelancing, how do you get a client if you have no work to show, right? So now you have to like try and create these like pseudo projects that don't really exist. It's not for anybody. You have to somehow um, uh, get yourself inspired to do this thing just to say that, oh, here's the thing I built. It's not really for anybody, but you can kind of see my skills, right? And um, But it's me by myself alone and get out in these things that didn't even exist back then. So, you know, it's like literally me putting it on a URL and pointing it to it. So it was hard. It was really tough. And then, um, again, I realized that um, maybe freelancing isn't going to work. Um, I, I struggled to build, to build it, uh, my business to a point where I felt like um, we as a family will be financially stable. And so I decided to join the workforce. And that was tough because I've been doing it for like two, three years at that point, but I had very little experience to show for that because a lot of the things I did was literally make things for myself um, as a means of having like designing logos for fictitious companies and stuff like that. Um, and so that's one of the things that I want to do as part of the Mycelium Network is to anything that we do, like for example, the Mycelium Network needs a website, right? So I want to do that with the community. I want to. I don't want to go and build it. I want to do it with the community. And I want to do it like a for real project. You know, we have a project board on GitHub. We have tasks. People get assigned to tasks. People need to do pull request reviews. People need to review each other's code. Um, all that kind of stuff. Like, And be involved in how do we like take that thing and get it live on the internet. Because the awesome thing about GitHub is it's open and so you can point any potential employer to the work you've done. And the nice thing if you do it in this like, so it's it's great to contribute to open source in general. I think it's it's a good way to get experience and that kind of thing. But if you're involved in something that's, that's run as a structured project, you also show the employer that you can work as part of a team. You can take criticism, deal with it, not give up, maybe push back even if it's if you feel strongly about it and come to a consensus and land your work. Uh, I think that is a really good way. So I think the thing that you mentioned about high tech you and how you looked at specifically problem solving, I think that's key. And I think it's a key thing that's missing. So I'm curious, what do you think about all of that? And how did you address this whole thing of creating problems for people to solve, to, sh to have a means of signaling to employers what they're capable of? Absolutely. And you're totally right. I mean, there's so many um, courses that you can do out there. Um, and if you look on, it's interesting, if you go on to GitHub and you look for projects, a lot of the time, right, you'll find these half finished repos of like a project that somebody had to do as part of this course, and there's no documentation. It's obviously something they did, and it's almost discouraging. Um, but but there is such power in that world world of, of GitHub and open source. And I'm super excited to chat like open source and how that plays in. Um, but for us, one of the big pieces, and it ties into the creativity piece as well, is we spent, so the the kind of core program that we ran was uh, like a five-day long, I call it kind of an extended hackathon for beginners. So instead of sort of coming in and giving a problem statement or giving like a theme, we would sort of have them come in and we would teach them the fundamentals that they needed to know and then just kind of put them out there in the world. And we brought in mentors from local technology companies who would basically just be there floating around. So whereas unlike that traditional hackathon that you go to where you might have that, but it's generally about tapping into the expertise that's in your team or in your friend group, this was the expectation that nobody was coming in with any knowledge. And then the mentors were just kind of there and able to support when questions came up. Um, but within the world of the problem solving and ensuring that this was something that's going to be valuable for the students, one of the big pieces of that onboarding process was actually having them uh, gain an understanding of, of design thinking from like the very base level of going and finding a problem that is relevant to a user base. Um, and the unique thing in that uh, in that program was we had about 16, uh, 16 uh, high school age students that were there from grade nine to 12. And we said, great, within this sort of like this captured user group, go talk to each other 
and see what problems you can find within this group of 16 youth. Um, so you've got your target market is there. You're building something that solves a problem for young people. Um, you're going to do the user research all within like this super fast, like hour long period. And then we're going to work with you to identify the thing that you can actually accomplish with your skill level um, in this sort of like three days fundamentally of programming. Um, and, uh, and so that was a really powerful thing within this, within this model of the projects that they were creating is every project that they were creating, they could speak to like why this is an issue because they're the user for it. And even if they're not the, the, the perfect user, the super user, the early adopter, they're going to get it because they're in that headspace. That's super clever. I really, I haven't thought about that angle. That's, that's really nice. Like essentially telling your community, Hey, instead of me bringing a project to you, you bring a project to me by talking to each other. That's really clever. I really like that. That's a nice one. And okay, cool. So you've kind of like opened the door to open source and you said that you'd be really keen to talk about it. And it was one of my questions. So let's dive into it right now. What do you, how do you see open source? What role does it play in uh, teaching and learning. So from both sides and it's a big topic. Oh so yeah, I love big topic though. This is good. We can go so many directions. So, uh, I mean, in terms of, uh, I mean, I can talk about my experience using it within sort of teaching environments and then also just personally, cause, uh, I'm, I'm sort of learning this web development experience. So, so from the, the teaching perspective, one of the really great things that I've found is, um, the open source world has really, uh, invited, um, new developers to get a deeper understanding of the technology that's out there and that they're using every day. Um, whereas in the past, uh, again, very similar to this project idea, if you wanted to see what code looked like for a project, you would have to go and find somebody that had published on their personal website or, or on some other service, some fairly boring project that was maybe in a language that you weren't interested in to now the world where literally, um, you're excited about, maybe you're excited about live streaming and you want to you want to see like the the code behind Twitch. Now, not all of it is going to be exposed, but you can go and take a look and sort of see like, hey, this is the the stuff that's underlying this technology. So uh, I think there's a level of playing to people's interests and allowing them to get exposed to programming through exploring areas and topics that they're passionate about. Um, I, I mean, I teach, so I teach at a middle school level. So I deal with um, learners that are doing things on sort of Minecraft and mind test a lot. That's a big thing with the age group that I work with and the mod community in there is huge um and the cool thing is i have kids learning about open source without ever knowing the word open source they go and search minecraft mod that does this thing they end up on github they pull the code down they're reviewing it and just based on their interest level they're going in and they're discovering sort of open source and that's opening the door to saying like this isn't this um ethereal thing that i can't understand or i'll never be able to wrap my mind around they're actually letting me in the door so i think accessibility is huge there um i think for me uh, personally, as a, as a learner who's been going through the development process, what I love is I've always been the kind of person that if I did a course, like where I'm building something, I'm going to get to step three of seven and I'm going to be out. I'm going to be done. I'm like, ah, this isn't something that I'm really interested in. Uh, what I love doing and what I found really powerful about open source is actually being able to just go and grab somebody's code and then mess around with it. Like have a working piece of code and then to go in there and I'm going to change a variable or like alter a method and I'm going to see the issue and the change that that does in there. And that's like a, been a super powerful part of my learning journey journey is having this massive resource to go and 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 dig into to code like that yeah yeah for sure i was just about to ask you like i i wonder um how effective it is to to for example present and well this is not somebody that's beginning beginning but somebody that's like had a little bit of um learning of html css and a bit of javascript to, to create like a super simple project, right? It's like, say for example, uh, a mobile navigation, right? So it has a little hamburger menu. When you click it, it opens the thing. When you click it again, it closes it. And so it does a couple of things. You know, it, it like, it acts, it reacts to the user. 
Um, it changes the icon based on um, the state of the menu. And then to, to, to tell students, okay, here's the code that makes that happen. Can you look at it, read through the code and write a blog post explaining how it works? I've often thought it, if that would be an interesting approach for, for learners. 100% and at every level. So for, for the High Tech U program, we built out the academy. That's exactly kind of what we did. Not the blog post angle, but we would actually give them a template that was a functional template, but it was the most basic template, right? It would, it would, so uh, in our first iteration, they were doing really simple web apps built on, I think, Node or something like that. And it was just, it would basically spit out a thing that said, hello world. Um, the most recent iteration, we did the same thing with the GitHub template, but it was a Discord bot and you would sort of follow the steps and it would give it. But again, it was not the build part one, two, three, and eventually you'll get to a bot. From day one, you had a functional thing and your role was to customize it, um, which was huge. Um, and that kind of carries through even to the work that I do with Battlesnake. Uh, and so within that, um, that it's a uh, very open source company, very community focused, but um, because of the nature of what it is, uh, the, the, the um the game itself requires you to build your own web server in a different language and so we provide templates that are really dumb um dumb snakes that are competing in this game um that will not die they will they will do a thing but it's not going to be super um not going to be super powerful. And what's interesting there as well, that's I think even more unique about what we're doing with that company is that uh, let's say somebody is using a template and they and say Python and they've learned how the Python template works and we've got a Go template or a Rust template. They can then go and say like, okay, I see how it was laid out in Python. I'm going to go over to Rust and see how it's laid out there. And you're going to gain this really practical understanding just by looking at those different templates that are accomplishing the same thing. And yeah, I think that the whole world, when GitHub did templates, they shifted the game in such a huge way for education. That that is that is for sure. I I've totally embraced that. Um, I've I've got this project called Project Calavera, and it's very intentionally titled that way um, because it's all about creating skeletons, um, and some of them are uh, the, the the main one, the Project Calavera, Project Calavera is a CLI that basically, um, if you're starting a new project, and so you wanna add Prettier, you wanna add some ESLint rules, you wanna add StyleLint rules, maybe you're using SAS, so you wanna add some SAS stuff. That's kind of cumbersome, right? You either have to create a template that you then every time fork, uh, or not fork, when you create a new repo, you create it from that template, or you need to like copy and paste stuff from this like GitHub repository you keep around with all your default configs. So the way this one works is you basically run a CLI command and then you have some configuration in your package JSON. And based on that, it'll just broop, it'll just spit out all that stuff for you. Um, and I take community input and I follow like a bunch of projects that um, create these best practices for what is the latest, greatest way to, to configure your ESLint or your Stylent um, and how to configure Babel and stuff like that. So it doesn't do framework things because that's why it says it's like a um, boilerplate for new projects, bring your own framework. Because uh, I think frameworks oftentimes have this built into their own little CLI. So if you start up a new Vue project or you start up a new React project with one of these like boilerplate things like create React app or the Vue CLI, it does that. But there isn't something like that for somebody that's just like, oh, but I don't want to use any framework. I, I really, my needs are pretty simple, but I would like the linting and all that stuff there. But then the other side that the Project Calavera project also contains are exactly these things. So it's a basic template of a simple express server. And so if you just want to create an express server, but you don't want to go and set up the app.js and the default basic routes that you'll probably need and helmet to configure security, you can just use the Calavera um, uh, template and start your project from there. And so you kind of can hit the ground running and can get um, going quicker. But at the same time, it introduces you to existing code. So you might say like, oh, this is cool. What's all these things that it just gave me? And so I, I work hard on documenting, like this is what it does, these are the things it brings in, this is what each of these individual uh, dependencies um, do for you. 
But then people can go back and say, oh, you know what? Actually, this thing, I don't even think it should be part of the template or I think the template is missing something or hey, I think you got behind a little bit. I'm quite good at Express and we can improve it this way. Or for new people, it's just you can read through the code and say, oh, that is how when I enter localhost 3000, it's serving the index page. It's because I have this get route in this routes.js file. Ah, oh, gotcha. Now I get it. So yeah, I think that template thing you talked about is definitely, definitely um, key. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that you brought up that's super um, key about why open source, and maybe this isn't open source since it really became a, a much larger thing in sort of the 2000s, um, but this idea of documentation, even like, uh, even if you go through and do one of these online courses where it's telling you the thing and you do it, once you get the final project, generally it's not including like uh, inline comments, right? Where you're actually like commenting on a method or commenting on a variable to say what this thing is for. I think as soon as you open up your code to the world, it's forced individuals that are either contributing or are creating to do a much better job at documenting, save with companies. And that's such a powerful thing for educational situations, learning situations is to be able to go in and almost see line by line. And it doesn't fit in every situation, but for so many people to be able to reference back there on a regular basis um, is, uh, is such a huge, a huge piece. And, and I certainly know like uh, the, the framework that I, so I, I, I had programmed in PHP many years ago and then heard it was terrible and moved away and then decided that I was going to build a project in it. But the framework that I chose, uh, I chose specifically because the, the, the creator of it, um, uh, has incredible, uh, focus on documentation for it. So not only are the docs good, but like you can go into a controller, uh, it's like, it's an MVC model. So it's like, you can go into the controller, you can go into like new view and they're all documented just incredibly well. So you don't need to guess about things. It's all provided for you. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, um, Nuxt is the view version. I think next is the React version. But either way, um, the, if, let's say it's Nuxt. Like it's so very well documented. It, each because it, it generates a bunch of boilerplate for you, right? So it generates like folders and inside the folders or stuff. And as you open each folder, there's a README inside every folder that tells you what's the purpose of this folder and what's the purpose of the files in this folder. So there's no guesswork here. It's like Oh, I see. That's what it is. And it will, for example, say like, oh, there isn't, you'll say, but wait a minute, there isn't a um, store for, uh, directory. And then you'll see there's a readme where you would expect it to be store.readme. And you're like, hmm, open that. The reason there isn't a store is because Nuxt, this is the way the configuration works and it generates the store for you. So you never have to worry about the store and that is why it doesn't exist. I, I'm really impressed with, with the documentation. And I think the other side of documentation is um, opening it up to community for localization. I think um, I saw a documentary about Vue.js um, and the creator, Evan, Evan Yu. Um, and one of the, with the reasons Vue took off in China so much as opposed to React was literally because Evan is originally Chinese. He lives in the US, um, but for him, it was important to have the docs available in Chinese from the beginning. And so he opened it up to the community and he did some of the translation himself. And that is the main reason why Vue won over React when it comes to China, because for the people in China, it was very important to have it available in their language. And so that being there from the get-go, over and above the fact that it was really good documentation, the fact that it was available in their language made a big difference. And the more I am involved in communities like Mycelium Network and other larger communities I'm also involved with, I, I have gained an understanding and a respect for a lot of people that really love their native language. And for them, it's not like I can't speak English. It is really like they have a passion for their language. They have a passion for their culture. And it's important to them to be able to read the content in their language. And we often forget that. It, it, like this, it's just, it's in English. Everybody can speak English, right? Yeah, it's not just about that. There's more to it. There's more subtleties about it. So I think it's important to encourage that when you run projects. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think we, yeah, it's the, it's the simple things that, uh, certainly as a native English speaker, um, I, I love going into these, um, into these, uh, these, these frameworks and these tools and, and looking at this code and finding it in, in my native language. And, and, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's been a really big risk, not maybe not resurgence or, uh, I think a big, um, push around the world with it, it, uh, it really focusing more on making accessibility, not just about, um, can people use this, but also can people use it in a way that they feel the most safe and comfortable? Exactly, exactly. I think the term accessibility is getting a lot of attention and I'm really, really happy about that because that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. But I think people have also understood that the umbrella that's covered by accessibility is much larger than what people have thought about in, in the past. Um, but I am super curious about Battlesnake and the more you talk about it, the more curious I get. So uh, I'm going to like, please tell us more about Battlesnake. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so Battlesnake is a, uh, a multiplayer programming game where your, uh, code is the controller, uh, and you are building, uh, Basically, fundamentally, you're building a web server uh, to compete in the the classic sort of Nokia phone game Snake. Did you ever play that where you sort of the snake goes up and you try and eat and you get longer and you try not to yep, die? Yep. Yeah, yeah so it's that. <laughs> yeah, so it's that. Um, but it's now uh, a programming game where folks build out. Um, at, at, I guess at at um at a core level, they're building out an AI snake that's going to compete against other AI snakes. Um, to uh to uh try and win and survive and win prizes or win points or win bragging rights or or whatever you're looking to to. To, to get out of the this the platform and so it started out um i think in like the early uh the early aughts of the 2000s as a uh as a sort of a recruiting event uh, so it was run by a, a startup um here in victoria and they would invite hundreds and what eventually became thousands of developers to come in and basically do a, a hackathon but all focused on one specific problem which was can you build a snake that can beat the other snakes um, and it's since transformed into a global platform more than 10,000 developers around the world are playing this game right now um, and uh, really has shifted from a focus on uh, recruiting um, to providing a really cool sandbox for professional developers to explore new technologies uh, in a way that isn't having them just sort of build out a project that's kind of boring. Yeah, that's super cool. I wonder, I've been seeing like these, um, I haven't clicked on them yet. I don't know why, but anyway, I've been seeing videos pop up in my YouTube recommend recommendations. That's around the Nokia snake thing. And now I'm starting to wonder, is this Battlesnake related? So I'm definitely going to click on one of those just after this, uh, after this chat and see if it's all about this. But I'm also going to look at Battlesnake and try to give it a go. So can you kind of create like a little community and say like, we are going to build the mycelium network snake and see if it can like beat stuff. Yeah. So this is the cool thing. So, uh, this is a feature that's like very sort of early days. Um, it's kind of, we've gone through many iterations, but yeah, so we're in the process of building up features where you would have a team. Um, and it would basically be, you would sign up for the mycelium network team, and then your snake would be represented as the mycelium network there. Um, but already, I think we, we just launched the feature really recently where you can run sort of a mycelium network tournament where, uh, people will build their own snakes and go and build them. And then you'll run sort of a small competition um and it it auto generates the the brackets and the ladders and so basically you just press a button that says play and it'll have these big uh the games will show up and it's uh it's super exciting to watch like it's one of these um it's one of these uh uh situations that is as close to a sort of a sporting event for competitive programming or for collaborative programming as you can possibly get. Um, and it's good. Like if you got a, our, 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 uh, our CEO, our co-founder um, has young kids and they love tuning in anytime we have a tournament. Cause it's just like bright colors and fun designs that are going around on the stage, but uh, or, or around on the screen, but they love it. And they're, they're cheering for their favorite snake and hoping that they win. And yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So it's very much like battle bots, right? I love watching exactly that, where people like build these bots and then they try and like destroy the other bot. <laughs> it's such totally. a nerdy thing, but and that's it's just it. so fun. 
It is. And now like that was always for like, right. You had to be a, a like an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer to build those bots. Now, now it's like you can be a software developer with a year of experience or one that has 10 years of experience. And you can go and build this really cool thing that teaches you a new language or a new technology stack. Um, and, uh, and really, um, do it in a way that you're not just building a, a project that's going to sit in a repository somewhere and that nobody's going to care about. Like you're invested in this code that you've created in a way that it's sort of personified. You can add custom skins to it. So you can have heads and tails that are like, um, from a big list of customizations, um, and you can get points to get more of them. And, uh, yeah, it's just so exciting. And one of the big reasons that that has been super successful is a open source, like, uh, almost all of the, the platform, all of the key components of it are open source. We have folks contributing to it all the time, but also, um, community has been a massive, massive part of its success of just like uh, enabling the community to, to get in there and get their hands dirty with code. That's awesome. Yeah, I was about to ask about the open source thing because I remember you mentioned that and I was like, oh, wow. So I guess there's, there's quite a lot of um, opportunity for folks to also contribute like directly to the project. Yeah, I mean, it, it's even gotten to the point where, uh, so we have, we've had open source, I, uh, and I just it's sort of tying this back to the documentation piece. We've had um, a documentation like repository forever that was really only managed by our team. Um, and we really always wanted community members to join. But then we had a bunch of community members that were like, I'd really like to see this in there, but I don't want to com contribute to the official documentation. So they created like a separate documentation that we provided support for and now that's become our official documentation um setup and so it's a it's a it's a community-led project that we were like yes this is a thing that we really want to adopt um and so that's like at this core level now this this um this this code that is such a core piece of what we do is something that our community said we can do it better yeah yeah and i mean that is where diversity comes in right oftentimes if you open it up to the world and say poke at our stuff and tell us if we if you can think of better ways of doing it. More often than not, it does happen. And I, I love the fact that the company was willing to embrace this because so often people are very precious about the things they make, if you know what I mean. And so they're like, no, 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 no. They could not possibly be better than what we did. So kudos to the company for adopting this. I think it's amazing. Um, I've like had a little poke at your website and LinkedIn and stuff like that. And I'm curious about this one thing. So you've written scholarly, well, I, what, scholarly documents on quantum computing. Um, do you want to tell us about some of those? Like you have linked to like these citations. Like I had a friend that worked at a quantum computing company for a little bit. I, I've, I've listened to the Wired thing where they like explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> I've listened to that. It's fascinating. I still don't think I quite understand it, but I would love to hear your take on it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, uh, when I, when I built out or when I, I was working with the team that, that built out the, the high tech U program at the university of Victoria, um, one of the co-founders and a huge mentor to me, um, Ulrika Steiger. Uh, so she was the chair of the computer science department at the university of Victoria at the time. Um, and, uh, her and her, uh, her husband actually, um, who's also a, a professor at the university in software engineering, um, have been sort of the, um, the quintessential, uh, leaders in the space of quantum computing education at the University of Victoria and actually arguably in British Columbia and Canada and North America. Um, and one of the key pieces when they were building out that sort of what quantum computing education looks like, which was at a focus on the post-secondary level, was we want to make this accessible for everybody because it's too late if they're in post in their postdocs to be learning about quantum computing. This is like an, a hugely up and coming field. Um, so uh, yeah, so the initial um, sort of iteration was we, we create a play on words. So we did instead of high tech U, we called it high tech Q um, and, uh, <laughs> and really, yeah. And really focused just on how can we uh, take the core components of quantum computing um, and make it accessible to a high school student. Um, and so the first year that we, uh, that we ran the, the, um, the, the sort of workshop, we had some partners from IBM, uh, and we were able to get access to IBM's, uh, quantum computing sort of sim uh, actual, their, their actual quantum computer, as well as their, um, their simulation software and gave, gave learners like this, um, uh, this run through. 
And what's really cool is we sort of, the focus there was actually to build out a curriculum that again was open source for people to use where we were testing the waters to see what this looked like at the high school level. And then we published a few papers um, to then say, here's where, here's where you can go and do it yourself. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, that's great. I'll definitely link those up. Um, I, and I'm going to read them myself. That's for, that's for sure. Um, another thing that I found that you wrote on this Battlesnake blog, actually, is deploying web servers for free in 2022. I think this is a key piece that's often missing. <laughs> I um, A lot of people are like, okay, cool. I understand HTML and CSS. I think I'm starting to get my two groups with JavaScript. But how the heck do I get this on a website? Like, how do... Like, it's cool, like, get up, but I want my own URL and, like, things. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this is one of these um, these interesting situations that I run into as sort of the non-developer working for developers um, and doing things that newbies do. Uh, so uh, I was, uh, there's a, a really cool initiative that we run through Battlesnake called our Developer Fellowship, which is a, uh, um, a program focused on providing support to, uh, to, to women and non-binary developers from across Canada who just don't have access to either people or mentorship or resources. Um, and through that, That's one amazing. of the big pieces, yeah, so like super cool initiative. We do it with a, a bank here in Canada called RBC, who are just this spectacular partner um, for Battlesnake. And one of the pieces of that was educational opportunities. And so I wanted to be able to go in with these developers that were joining and say, here's a bunch of ways that you can deploy a Battlesnake to learn a new technology. And so I spent a morning and I just like went on all these uh, these these platforms that I, I basically Googled, like, how can I do this really fast and for cheap? Um, and then like did like a timing. And then and then our CEO, Brad, was like, hey, man, you need to do this as like a like a legitimate blog post that you can share out more widely. And so um, that that queued up a um, I think like a two month journey of me going and finding even more platforms and like trying to build this out. It doesn't necessarily look that way in the final blog post, but we've got more. Like I deployed on about, uh, I think 12 different services. And we were like, we're going to start with the five that we have here and then go from there. I don't know. I fully understand. Like I heard a famous quote uh, once there where a person said, it took me four hours to make a 10 minute video. So I totally understand. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the focus with this, uh, for anybody that wants to read it, uh, it's it's really cool. If you go to blog.battlesnake.com, it's kind of linked on there. But basically my focus with this was for folks that are at my level or sort of like early stage developers that are not able to log into AWS and figure things out or, or like they look at that and then they run away screaming was to look and find accessible and I know we're using that word a lot, but like, I mean, accessible for the lay person or the new person uh, to go in and within like five minutes, ideally, get a functional web server out there from an open source GitHub template. Um, and it's funny. Yeah, so yeah. despite the fact that AWS and Azure and uh, GCP kind of have the market share for like large companies that are doing it, um, uh, there's a lot of these smaller companies that are coming out, especially now that Heroku has decided to remove their free plan in in sort of in sort of September October. Um, there's more of these companies that are that are sort of releasing better free plans for people to get there. Um, and, and so I got to do like massive shout out. There's an uh, there's a, a a platform that is actually based here in Canada as well, actually here on the West Coast. That is. Uh, mm -hmm. I think fundamentally is a game changer in the open source deployment space called Railway. Um, and it's uh, it's the most beautiful and smoothest platform that I've ever used. They also include in their, um, when you're starting a new project with them, you can choose from a bunch of open source projects. And when you click deploy, it goes through and reads everything, but it'll deploy the database. It'll deploy uh, your server. It'll give you a public domain. Um, and it's all free for like 500 hours a month so just like super super cool. wow that is really impressive yeah i'll definitely check that out it's incredible the tooling that's becoming available i, I honestly like um like the ability to just open your browser and like do everything like you, you don't have to even leave your browser it's super amazing um i don't know if you know about the browser company they make this browser called arc um I, it, it's it's pretty new it's pretty new um and it's based on Chromium, but uh, the experience is completely different. Like they're re-envisioning what a browser can be. And I actually had a talk from the CEO the other day about some of the dreams they have for Arc. 
And he sees this as essentially this future where what he calls internet machines are going to become the thing. And it's very Chromebooky uh, in nature. It's this idea that Arc can be not just your browser, but it's your computer. Because if so many things that you think is an application is actually just a web app that's running in Electron or something like that, where it's in the end of the day, it's actually just a browser. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, Arc will, will open up those possibilities and make it like this thing that you just open up and you're like, okay, cool, open up Arc and the rest of the day, you're just an Arc. And like GitHub has done so much to do this, like getting around GitHub with their command palette, you just see uh, command K on a Mac and it pops open and you're just like, okay, I want to go to this repo, boop, boop, now I want to go to that one, command K. You don't even have to click, you can just use the keyboard to get around, you can move files, you can rename files. And then if you really want to do some uh, intricate work, you just open a code space. Now you've got a, the entire VS Code running in your browser, but all it's synced with your local VS Code, so it brings in all your extensions and everything's there. And then you have services like Railway you talked about where you can just say, okay, cool, Railway, take all the stuff I just did and deploy it all, database and all. It's yeah. amazing. It is. And you know, there's another one similar to uh, similar to the, the code spaces. I don't know if you've heard of Gitpod. Have you heard of them? I've heard about it. Yeah. Somebody mentioned it to me. I'm still, I want to get, look at that. Yeah. So it's the same, same idea as code spaces. Um, but the entire platform, that's all they do is basically just do code spaces. But, um, it's, uh, I, I, I've used both. Um, when I was setting up on, uh, during that sort of blog post process, it literally like runs up a full, uh, a full setup for you, including your in web browser in like, I don't know, it was like 20 seconds. It was ridiculously fast. Um, and I was like, I don't know how you're doing this, especially when you're, this is free for a lot of the time, but also it's just so incredible. And it's funny cause I've moved, I, I purchased a secondary device. It was a Chromebook and I've tried to set up local device or set up things on my local device and like use the backend sort of like Linux environment that it gives you. And yeah, I like, I ended up like you run into so many issues that you're like, can I do this in the browser? And you can, and it's so much easier. You don't need to worry about where where were your most recent commits if you didn't actually push it up to the um, push it up to where you should have pushed it up at the time. Um, it's just all there for you. And I think that's actually uh, that's a big for new web developers, folks that are getting into the space. I think that's a game changer. This whole browser based setup. Uh, I have a I have a colleague. I have a colleague that. Uh, um, uh, has been a software developer for years. And they, uh, they said to me recently, you know, one of the biggest things that I do with folks that are getting involved in, in sort of a technology, um, role, or they want to get in there is I will sit down with them for two to three hours. And I will just like spend all that time to get them set up with the perfect development environment. Cause if they have a terrible experience with getting their dev environment set up, they're going to walk away. Um, and so making that process and getting rid of the 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 barriers that exist Barrier there changing. i think is a huge yeah. game changer yeah mm, i'm finding um with the people that i have in the community i'm finding that people on windows machines are especially struggling with this um i mean kudos to microsoft for adding like windows subsystem for linux and making that be more and more seamless but even with that, it's still really hard. Like um, if you're not on a Mac or if you're not on Linux, uh, Linux is still tricky, but much, much easier than Windows. That's oftentimes what you end up doing most of your day is fighting with your tools. And that's the last thing you want to do, even as a professional being in the industry for 10 years, 15 years. The last thing you want to do is wake up and fight with your tools. You want to solve problems. You want to be, you know, productive. You don't want to like, ah, I just can't do this thing because VS Code is being weird or because for some reason, like MongoDB has just disappeared. Like suddenly I don't have MongoDB anymore. Um, so I think these in-browser things that also gives you this ability to create like these dev containers like you can do in code spaces where basically you open it up and it's like, I'm just going to get everything ready for you because the creator of this code space has already told me what you will need. So I'm going to download all these extensions. I'm going to do all these configurations and you just open a file and start writing code. I think it's it's definitely like you say, it's it's a complete game changer. 
it's funny. So for the for for anybody that that's out there that is on Windows, so I'm a Windows developer. I do it there. I struggled for years with this same thing. I found this brilliant piece of software, uh, open source software again, called Laragon. Um, and so this is, uh, kind of like, um, a watered down or maybe not watered down, um, based on my understanding of like a local Docker instance, but it's not that it's just an app. It runs the web server. It's like, um, a lamp or like WAMP, like those old, um, those old systems that yeah. you had set up. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it's much more modern. You can, with the click of a button, you can install, um, anything that you want to, even to the point of like, uh, publishing or, or getting your app up on ngrok. Whereas normally you'd have to go through a bunch of steps in the command line. It's literally just like you right click on the app and then click deploy to the internet. And then it'll just like spin up an ngrok, um, URL for you that you're able to use. Um, just like it, it was a game changer for me when I discovered it. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I'm definitely going to share that like with everybody. Um, it almost feels like it's almost like, I don't know if you know, setup. Setup is this thing you get on on Macs um, where you pay like $10 a month and then it's got all like these applications that solves all these little problems for you. It's it's often like indie developers and they've created like this little app that does this one thing really, really well. But there's also like big apps on there that you wouldn't even expect to be on there seeing that you only have $10 a month. But it almost feels like a setup but for developers. And I think that would actually be super awesome if somebody can create something like that that's cross-platform where you literally say, well, I need a server that can run PHP, I need a MySQL database, and I need a VS Code thing, and I need that, and it just goes, cool, here I go, and there's everything for you. That would be amazing. So there's project ideas, somebody wants to take it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, I totally, I totally feel the pain of all those Windows developers out there. And and yeah, what you're talking about, right? Having these, again, going back to the browser piece, Say, say what you want about about folks that are are not able to set up a local um, a local development environment and and that may cause challenges for them later on um, in their career but for especially for early stage folks that are really just needing to get into the code and 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 not fight and not know how to troubleshoot these things um, I think I think there's gonna be a big shift um, in in certainly for for junior devs especially yeah no, I completely agree with that um so I want to cycle back into something different that's very, very different to what we've been talking about, but I think it's something to touch on. Um, seeing that you are kind of, and it's interesting because you're kind of like both sides of the coin. You've been involved with education, but you're also like a, a web developer still learning the craft and, and you know, getting going through interviews and all that kind of good stuff. Um, what are your thoughts around interviews, especially related to the tech industry? I think interviews are generally a challenging thing no matter what the industry, but I want us to kind of focus in on the tech industry. Do you have any thoughts around this topic? I know it's a bit of a hard topic, but anything you want to say? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I come to this from an interesting angle, um, just because even the position that I have with Battlesnake, it wasn't necessarily a, um, an interview per se in the traditional way. Uh, so, uh, the interview that I actually had that kind of got me in there. And I think there's it's probably some piece of that that people can take away um, was the work that I did uh, with High Tech U. So uh, the founder of Battlesnake, which is the company that I work for now, um, when we were first building up the program, we went and met with, I think, 30 different tech companies and said, hey, we've got this idea. What do you think about this? And it was generally just a fact finding mission. Um, and we went and met with this one company and they said, we love this idea. It's fantastic. How much money do you need to make it successful? And we threw out a number that was way too small and he said add another zero um and uh, and we'll make that happen um and so through that process it was a lot of sort of them being really involved and seeing how i worked and the the things that i was able to accomplish and to get an idea of who i who i was as sort of a, a worker and and just a person um and then when the opportunity came that this position became open it was sort of more of a conversation so um i think while this doesn't tie necessarily directly into the interview, one of the things that I will say um, is you never know where a job is going to come from um, and you never know what is actually an interview that you don't realize. Um, so yeah, that's true. A- anytime you're interacting with somebody in in the technology industry, um, 
I would say from step one, from that cold email that you're sending them um, to the coffee that you're having with them, all of that is an interview process. And as somebody who has hired a lot of people that are in the technology space, I will also say um, interviewing sucks for the interviewer. Interviewing is time consuming. Interviewing is um, stressful. Interviewing is um, oftentimes just not an area of focus for people. So employers really want you to be successful. They're not going into it like despite the old view of sort of three people sitting on a panel across from you and them sort of challenging you uh, to show that you're worth there. They want you to be successful. By the time you get into the interview, they already like you. It's your job just to sort of show them why and to demonstrate that. Um yeah, does that does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I spoke to somebody um, during the week um, for a different recording, a different uh, episode, and and they said an interesting thing, which I kind of knew, but I I forgot about the fact that that is actually the most important thing. The most important thing, almost when you're in an interview, is yeah, sure, your your tech skills is important, and some companies focus too heavily on that, um, especially when they they have like all these crazy algorithms and stuff like that, and what you know the the, the dreaded whiteboard. Um, challenges um, but companies that that take a different approach to this and a more healthier approach generally what they want to understand is what value do you bring to the company and that is what you have to focus on if they hire you how will it make their company better I think that is what they really want right like sure they know they need another developer because there's a lot of work to do but what is the value you bring um, is is there like something in your background that's really unique? Do you have a unique perspective on the thing? And I think researching the company and therefore not just um, doing the thing where you just send out resumes to 200 companies and hoping somebody comes back to you. I think you have to instead like really go and do some research about companies that you would be interested in working for and find out what they're talking about, what they're blogging about. Um, and if you have a unique idea this is the time to bring it up. It's in that interview. Like, so I read this thing that you wrote and I really like that idea, but I was thinking and I think blah, blah, blah. I think that is the conversations that's going to be, that's going to get you in the door more than just your technical skills by itself. Absolutely. I would say like, it's always that last question that, that is asked by every interviewer everywhere in the world, which is, uh, do you have any questions for us? which is actually like the one that's going to like land you in that job or, or could just be a thing that you miss out on. It's such a huge opportunity. Um, especially if you're going in and your questions are only around, um, what's the salary like, uh, or, uh, or like what's the, like some very low level or, or, or just surface level piece, but actually digging in and being like, so yeah, I saw, I saw this post and like, how did you decide that that was the way that you were going to pursue, like opening the conversation, right? It shows that you're interested in what they're doing. I couldn't agree more. I think there's huge power in a question that seems like it's just a filler. Yeah, for sure. I think that's super important. And it's, and it's, I think people have the wrong perception of that question. That question isn't, um, just asked. I think that question is asked deliberately to to see if you have the confidence to ask questions, um, because I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to waste their time. No, people actually want you. That that's critical. I know I've interviewed people for positions, and I've almost always um, had a much more a much better feeling about um, candidates that had insightful questions, and not not about like. Um, how much money or working hours, but more stuff about like the culture of the company. Um, how do you work together as a team? Um, what are the goals the for the company in the next six months? Um, and then when you like tell them the things you can about all these, these things, to have follow-ups, to actually actively listen and then have follow-up questions in the moment like you know like what we're talking now like a lot of this is not rehearsed you know i say a thing you you tear from that i tear from that i think that is what what really gets you in because that that creates a human connection with the interviewer so it becomes less of a interviewer interviewee and it becomes a conversation between two people that just want to make the company succeed i think that is something that people forget 
Absolutely. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, people that are interviewing, they're interviewing to see if you're a good fit with the team. And while that causes, I think, some challenges, because in a lot of cases, that means you end up hiring a lot of people that look the same um, or, or, or think the same way. Um, if going into it, recognizing that really people are wanting to know who you are as a person and not necessarily the things that you've done in the past. It's more about who you are and traits, right? I think, I mean, we talked about, uh, we talked about problem solving, but things like coachability and teachability and passion for like curiosity. Um, if somebody like, if, if somebody sparks within their conversation that they love learning, um, that is more powerful to me than if they can solve the most complex problem, because there will always be a more complex problem. And if you're only worried about sort of like being able to demonstrate you can solve it, that that's only going to get you so far. Yeah, no, that, that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, I agree. So um, I think we're an hour in. Wow, I can't believe it. Um, so I think... I just have maybe one or two more things. And then if you have anything also, um, talking about when you're not uh, making awesome battle snakes or writing blog posts, what are the things that, that interest you in this world outside of maybe even outside of tech? I know for a lot of people, when you ask that question, they're like, I still do tech stuff in my free time. And that's totally fine. Um, what do you like to do when, when you're not on the job? Yeah. It, it, so I'm kind of there. I'm trying to get away from it. So uh, I guess I've come to the tech industry through a lot of like windy, wavy um, processes and experiences. Um, so what's interesting is I really only within the past sort of I would say five years have I really been in the technology space. So, so much of my time up until then was the thing I would do in my spare time was tech stuff. And now I'm kind of getting paid for doing tech related things. And so I still do tech stuff in my spare time, but my, thankfully, uh, my, my, my lovely wife, um, is definitely not that person. She is definitely the outdoor person who enjoys like experiencing the world, um, where we live in British Columbia, uh, and on Vancouver Island specifically is absolutely gorgeous um so we uh one of the things that's a big thing for us is hiking so we hike uh uh and i say this and may regret it but we hike religiously and it's just because it happens on sundays we do it every sunday we'll drive we'll hike for a couple of hours um and it's such a uh getting back to like grounding yourself on a weekly basis especially when you're sitting and staring at a computer screen for many many hours a day is such a, such a powerful thing. Um, so that, That's very true. and then I, yeah. Right. And like, what about you? What about you? What do you do in the non, in the non tech related time, Shalk? Pretty much a lot of the same, to be honest. Um, we don't have a ton of hiking things. We used to do it. And then we kind of like fell off with COVID and stuff like that. We kind of like lost that, but we're trying to get back. The problem is we have pets that we'd like to take on a hike. And in South Africa, it's kind of hard to find places that's pet friendly. Like if you have a dog that you want to take with stuff like that. So um, we're currently like actually researching and trying to find places that is dog friendly because we do enjoy that as a family. So that's something that we'd like to do again. But we have a golf course close to us. And they kind of have a, uh, a walking path there. And that's dog friendly. So that's something that we do like in the week. Like maybe you just feel like I need an hour's break. When just the kids, we take the dogs and we just go take go for a walk. And it's 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 amazing what it does to your mental health, um, just taking that break. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I guess the other the other thing, the the tech, the tech fun thing that I do. Um, so, so when I was going through, uh, teacher's college and, and I did my master's in education as well, and it was specifically focused on sort of like alternative educational assessment, um, of sort of like reimagining what the report card is and how it can help learners. And, uh, so when I initially developed it, it was sort of a, uh, it was like a form, it was like a rubric. Um, and then I built, uh, as part of my, my thesis, I ended up building sort of a Google, Google apps app, like basically using the Google sheets, um, and just sort of building a pseudo database in the background. Um, and then, uh, when I was done, I went and pitched it to the, the school that I'd been working with. And they said, could it have this function? Could you turn it into a web app? And that was a dangerous thing to say, because while I said no, initially, then I was like, could I, I don't know how to do this, but could I, um, and, yeah. and, uh, and now like a year later, I'm still actively working on it, uh, like in every spare moment that I have. 
I have that exact same problem. I, I constantly, maybe I start poking at one thing and then I'm like, what if I can do that? I can, oh cool. And then, oh, but if I can do that, I wonder if I can do that. <laughs> and before you know Absolutely. it, it's like three hours later. And this like thing that maybe was at one purpose can now do all these different things. And I think that is just, that's just the natural curiosity that, that is part yeah. of the tech industry. I so agree. I feel like that. Uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's a professional software developer and they were saying the same thing of like, you can do anything like well, that's the very cool thing about tech is almost anything you can imagine you can do. The question is, should you, um, should you do it? Um, but also like being able to like time box yourself, right. Put yourself in this time period. Yeah. But yeah, like this app, mm -hmm. this app started out very simple. Um, and then as I learn, as you learn more and you discover the features and you actually start to understand how thing works, you're like, okay, I can do this. But you're just like you said, it's like, you're like, I'm going to do this in a half an hour. Four hours later, as you're like sweating because your problem solving is like not getting you to the place you need to go. Um, again, I'm very glad I have a non sort of tech wife. Like my partner is just like enjoys can use computers very well, but is not the developer. And she's like, you need to walk away from this. You need to go and we need to go for that. Hike. Yeah. No, for sure. That's super important. Yeah. To have that balance. It's great if you have somebody that can like literally drag you away from the laptop and say, that's enough now. Uh, it's brilliant. So in closing, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Any like parting words, words of wisdom, anything that you'd like to share? Yeah. So I think my, my only words of wisdom that I can provide, and I, this comes from experience and from talking to a lot of people, um, be curious, uh, be focused on learning and growing. Um, a growth mindset will bring you farther in not only the technology industry, but any industry. Um, it's going to make you a massively valuable asset that keeps growing um, and is going to help you to discover things that you didn't even know about yourself. Um, and in terms of that growth mindset, don't just let it be about things that you can do. Let it be about internal growth as well and discovering who you are and things that you enjoy. Um, technology is spectacular and it can help you do a lot of things for others, but really take time to focus on yourself and discover, uh, learn more about yourself and, and take time there as well. So grow outwards and also grow inwards. That is super valuable advice. Thanks for sharing that. Well, thank you, Andrew. This was this was really great. I mean, it's we've been at it for over an hour and it surely doesn't feel like it. Thanks so much for taking time on your Friday um, to speak with me and share all this wonderful information with our community. I really, really appreciate it. Amazing. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you to Polywork for having a, a place that, put, that makes these opportunities available. Um, I, I think the work that you're doing at, at Mycelium Network and, and the community you're building, this is exactly what the world re needs right now, making technology accessible for everybody. And so thank you so much for having me. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. You're so welcome. And thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Have a good day, man. Cheers. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Mycelium Network podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep making the web awesome.